You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So as we know, we are in the middle of October, which is uh, celebrated all across the world by evangelicals as Pastoral Appreciation Month. And the second week in October is uh, the week that most churches choose to do most of their activities. Um, We are spreading out the love through the rest of the month, and we're going to have a little bit of celebration every week. But I wanted to take this week and spend a little bit of time looking at the scriptural support for why we should appreciate our pastors. I think that we oftentimes do things in the church without always understanding why. And we should always be grounding everything that we do in the teachings of scripture. So if uh, it was not scriptural for us to appreciate our pastor, then we should not do it. But thankfully enough, it is. So we're going to take a look at a couple different passages today. And I want to sort of paint a picture for you of what the Bible says about how we are to appreciate and respect our pastors. Um, So if you'll open with me to our meditation verse today, which was Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 7 through 16. Now, Ephesians, as we know, is a letter um, that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Um, It's not always clear um, whether or not Timothy was serving in Ephesus at this time, uh, but we know that Timothy, who was one of Paul's closest associates, uh, followed him uh, into Ephesus later on and was ministering in Ephesus by the time the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy was wrote or were written. Ephesians uh, is often seen as kind of the pinnacle uh, book in the New Testament of ecclesiology. There's a lot of teaching about uh, what the nature of the church is. And it also has some of the most famous verses in the Bible that describe us about the free grace of salvation that is ours in Christ. And so we're going to look in uh, chapter four here. Like most of Paul's books, uh, he begins the, um, the letter by teaching doctrine. And so the first several chapters are about um, justification and salvation in Christ and what sin is. Uh, they're very doctrinally heavy. Um, They are what we call the indicatives of the faith, meaning they they tell us what it is to be a Christian. They tell us what it is, uh, who God is, what we're to believe about God. And then the the later verses in the Bible here in Ephesians are what we call the imperatives. And so we always have to remember that God always starts by telling us who we are in Christ. And then he goes on to tell us what we should do in light of that. Um, So we're, we're always working to do good works, but we're doing them because we are a saved and called people not to become saved. That's very important for us to remember. So I know we all read this just a minute ago, but I'm going to read through it again. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive in his train and gave gift, captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God who became and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now we're going to get a little nerdy. Those of you who know me know that I like nerdy things. I love Marvel Comics, I love Star Wars, and I love Greek grammar. So I'm going to try to keep this a little bit surface level, but there are some interesting things we have to understand about this that isn't always clear in the English. So in this passage, it's interesting because Paul is quoting uh, when he says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. He's actually quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. And what's interesting is he's not quoting it directly. So we know that that's the passage he's referencing. But if you look at Psalm 68, 18, and this is true in any, any translation you find, whether it's any English translation, uh, it's true of the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Paul likely would, would be using in his day. It's true in the original Hebrew manuscripts. In the original Hebrew manuscripts, it actually is saying, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. So the, the passage in its original context in Psalm 68 is David speaking to God, talking about God's victory, probably uh, in reference to the Exodus. There's some language in Leviticus that uh, is similar to this as far as Moses does certain things. And so Paul here takes this passage, which the, the Jewish church and the people in the first century would have understood as being praise to God, and he flips it around a little bit. And now he's, he's telling us by changing this pronoun to speak about Christ, that the person in view who David was talking to and worshiping was actually the second person of the Trinity. So we have to look at this and we recognize that everything that comes after this in this passage is about what Christ did for the church. So it's, it's not as though he wasn't doing these things for the Old Testament church, for the Jewish people. He provided many of these same kinds of offices and teachers and ministers to the Old Testament church. But specifically when we come to the New Testament, Paul identifies these four or five, depending on how you count it, um, different offices. And so he says here that he gives the church apostles, he gives the church prophets, he gives the church evangelists, and then there's some disagreement, but he gives the church pastors and teachers. Some people look at this and say it's two separate things. There's pastors and there's teachers. Um, I'm of the opinion that all pastors are teachers, even though not all teachers in the church are pastors. So it's kind of four and a half offices. But regardless of how we parse that out, we recognize that God has given us these things as the church. And so he, he talks about that Christ ascended into heaven, but he has to tell us what that means first. And so when he says he descended to the lower earthly regions, there's a couple different ways we can interpret this. The, the most uh, reasonable way, I think, is to see this as a reference to the fact that the second person of the Trinity, who is God eternally, took on flesh and became human. He became man, and he came down from heaven. He took on flesh, he lived a righteous life, and he died a death that we deserved. 
And then after dying and being buried, he raised, he was raised again and ascended into heaven. And when he was ascended into heaven, he sits at the father's right hand. And so he's able to, from that position of, of authority, he's able to give these gifts to the church, right? When we look at the uh, great commission in Matthew 28, it says all authority, Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? There's the indicative, all authority has been given to Jesus. And then there's the imperative, we must go and share the gospel with all nations. So we understand that this descent and ascension back into heaven is necessary for Christ to give us this gift, to give us the gift that he has. And we shouldn't assume or presume that Christ could not have done his work in the church without uh, office bearers or members of leadership, without these four or five different types of people, but he saw fit in his infinite wisdom to do so. So after he's established that these, these four or five gifts are given to the church, he goes on to explain what the purpose of this is. And this is where it gets a little bit nerdy. So when we read here in the version that I read, it reads this uh, section here as saying that the purpose of pastors, evangelists, etc., is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So, so this translation and, and most modern translations read this as two related things that the pastor's job or the job of all four or five of these different people is to prepare the saints for their work of ministry. Now, the older translations, if you look at the King James, actually break this into three different things that the pastor does. So it's to prepare the saints or to equip or perfect the saints to do the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. So whether we take the two action view or the three action view, it, it doesn't change the overall sense of the passage. The purpose of pastors is to make us ready to do good works, to bring us to maturity in Christ. There's some shades of nuance what this two verses three that I wanna bring out. Because when we look at the, the language here in this passage, it's interesting because as you all know, or as you can imagine, if you've ever translated one thing from one language to another, whether it's closely related languages like you know, English and Italian or English and Spanish, or whether it's distantly related languages like English and Greek or Hebrew, there are some concepts that just don't quite make it. They don't quite work. You can't translate them in a one-for-one -one sense. And so when you look at these three different clauses, they're actually all nouns. So we have to translate them as verbs in order to make it sound good in English, but they're actually three nouns. And so Paul is describing three states of affairs or three realities that come to pass through the work and through the agency of pastors, apostles, prophets, and evangelists. And so we have three different things. We have fully, fully equipped saints, we have works of service, and we have an edified or a reinforced church. So I want to talk a little bit about these things uh, uh, quickly here, and then we can move on to our actual passage for the day. The first is fully equipped saints. So this gets translated in a number of ways. Sometimes it's for the perfection of the saints or the perfecting of the saints, for the equipping of the saints, for the preparing of the saints. What's in view here in the original language is the idea of a fully furnished soldier. So, so this word would be used to describe a soldier who's received all of their equipment, all of their training. 
And there are different ways to say this. There's a word that means the process of fully equipping or fully furnishing a soldier. And there's a word that means the final result of a fully equipped, furnished soldier. And this word in this passage is the one for a completed process of a fully equipped, furnished soldier. So one of the purposes of a pastor in the church is to produce fully equipped, ready Christians who are ready to go out into the world and do works of service. That's part of why some people see this as a, a unified action versus two. The second thing is works of service. And so we have to remember that it's not only the Christian, the average everyday Christian who's expected to do good works. Our pastor is also expected to engage in works of service, works of ministry. And so as, as Jean referenced, sometimes that takes the form of a pastor going to the hospital to pray with a family when someone is sick. Sometimes it takes the, the form of our pastor helping fix the bathtub in the parsonage. Sometimes it's the work that's spent on the phone coordinating with Irving. All of those things are works that our pastor has done in service to the church. And he's given to us in part for some of that kind of activity. Now, we have to remember as the apostles wisely decided in the book of Acts that we should not allow our pastor to be distracted from the ministry of the word to wait on tables, which is what they're talking about in that context. So there are times that as a church, and we, we, uh, I think we all can do better at this, there are times where as a church, we should be taking ownership over some of that other stuff. We should be the ones who are uh, helping coordinate things, who are helping fix things around the church. If we have skills that allow us to do that or experiences that allow us to do that, we need to step up and do that. Because our pastor only has so much time. We all have limited time. But we should be taking that burden from him in order to allow him to minister the word to us more effectively. And the last thing, which is closely related to the first two, is an edified or a reinforced church. And so the, the picture here is a church that is absolutely ready for service. It's absolutely ready to take on whatever the world throws at it. Whether that is, um, whether that is coronavirus, and we have to grapple with how do we interact with our unsaved neighbors and coworkers? How do we, how do we love our neighbors well by, by doing what we can to protect and promote life? How do we handle it when the church makes a decision uh, that they, you know, we don't love? whether that's the way that the seats are arranged or whether that's our schedule. We have to be ready with biblical knowledge to handle those things. And that's one of the things that our pastor has given to us to prepare us for. And so Paul uh, concludes this area by giving us an idea of what the ultimate goal of this is. And he says this task culminates in Christian maturity and that this Christian maturity withstands false teachings and external attacks by the world and the devil. And so we think about the imaging he uses here. We think about a rudderless ship that's out on the oceans, right? And there's no, there's no way to stop it from being tossed to and fro. If you think, uh, if you've ever seen uh, a movie about like a, a, um, a boat crash, you see Titanic, right? The, the classic movie, even a, a boat that large can be tossed about by the waves if it is not prepared. So our pastor equips us by furnishing us with everything that we need from the scriptures. He equips us by doing works of service, by serving the church, by pouring himself out on our behalf, whether that's practical things in, in the physical care of the church, 
that's the study that he does, the labor that he gives us as he labors over the scriptures to be prepared. It's the prayers that he lifts on our behalf from the pulpit, but also in his own private life. And he reinforces the church with the teaching of the gospel and the law. And we understand that Christ is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. But he as a good shepherd has given us this gift of under shepherds who care for our souls. We're not going to turn there, but we should also remember that this is called a noble task by Paul. In 1 Timothy 3, he says, if anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so this tells us two things. It's noble. It's a noble task. So we should recognize that the work of a pastor, the office of an overseer, is not uh, something that just anyone can do. It requires a particular kind of endurance, a particular kind of character and integrity that if you just look around at some of the famous pastors in our world who have not been able to keep the faith, you can see where the fault lines form. And I'm thankful that we do not have to worry about that because our pastor is a godly and noble man. And secondly, it's a task. It doesn't say that you desire a noble vacation or a noble uh, activity or a noble job. It's a task. It's a, it's a task to do. It's work, and it's not easy. So with all that in mind, that the pastor of our church, the pastor of all churches, is a gift from God to the church. It's a gift that he gives us for the purpose of bringing us to the state of full maturity in which the the whole body can do its work. I I felt like Tim was reading my sermon notes when he was praying this morning, because that's exactly right. Every week we come here, every week we get fed from the word of God, we get fed a meal that our pastor prepares for us. And with the nourishment and the energy that comes from that meal, we go out into the world and we face the difficulties that God puts in our path in order to sanctify us. We should be thankful for that. So if you'll turn with me now to Hebrews 13, As I thought about what verse or what passage to uh, preach from, this passage just really jumped out at me. And and it was interesting because I actually, as I was doing my research, what I recognized is that this, the passage most people would go to is verse 17 and and they don't go to verse seven. And it was actually sort of an accident that I did as I started doing my study, I I typed in the wrong reference in my uh, Bible software. I typed uh, Hebrews 13, seven when I meant to type 17. And as we talked about a couple uh, months ago, when we looked at Philemon, there's this, this biblical device that's used uh, to sort of signal to uh, the reader or the hearer that uh, a particular group of text is a unit. And so the original language didn't have periods, it didn't have headings, it didn't even have spaces, it didn't have capital letters. Everything was the same line, just one string of letters. So they often had to use these techniques to sit, to indicate this part is like the beginning of a chapter. And what we talked about was something called an inclusio, where a writer will use a similar or identical phrase at the beginning of a section of text, and then again towards the end to sort of form these bookends, like a sandwich kind of, with all of the meat in the middle being related to those ends. And so what we see in verse seven here is the phrase, remember your leaders. And then we see in verse 17, obey your leaders. And so these two sections, even though a lot of, a lot of uh, Bibles break them up, those, those divisions that we see in the text are not inspired. They're things that the editors and the translators put in place to, to help us. So sometimes it's helpful for us to ignore those, to just turn that off, 
ignore the fact that those headings exist. So I'm gonna, gonna read this section here. It says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then I'm gonna skip down here to uh, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So in verse 7, we have to understand what's going on in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is written probably to a second generation Christian church who has uh, not heard the word directly from the apostles, but has heard the word and come into being and been converted under the teaching of someone who heard from the apostles. We see this in, in chapter 2. He says, uh, we heard this from those who were with the Lord. Some, that's a paraphrase, but he's indicating that he as the speaker or the, the writer, Hebrews was probably a sermon that was written and then written down. He as the speaker is saying, I'm not an apostle. I got the, I got the faith from the apostle, from an apostle. This is, you know, we can contrast this to Galatians where Paul goes at great lengths to explain he didn't get his gospel from anybody. He got it directly from Jesus. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, we're second generation Christians. So we're at a little bit of a different kind of a situation. The best theory that I've heard is that this was probably a sermon that was preached that someone like Luke or Timothy may have written down because there's a lot of Pauline language. There's a lot of language that makes it sound like whoever kind of sculpted this ran in the same circles as Paul. But this is a second generation church. And so we have this, this group of Christians that is now from the text we see on their second pastor or their second or third set of pastors or leaders. So that's why it says, remember your leaders who spoke of the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's likely that the, the pastor in mind here was no longer living, whether that was because of martyrdom or they died a natural death or some accident happened, we're not sure. But this phrase, remember the outcome of their way of life is something that you would say about someone who is no longer alive. Um, and so it's important for us to look at this because the word remember here is very interesting. It's not just the simple act of bringing to mind. They're not just saying, don't forget their names. They're not just saying, when someone asks you who the first pastor of the church was, you better be able to have that piece of trivia ready to go. Some people act like that's how we think about the past of the church. But this word remember is actually a much more deep meaning word. We, we see it when Paul says to um, do this in remembrance of Christ. When he quotes Christ, it says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the same word. We see Paul frequently says this when he says, I make mention of you in my prayers. It's the same word. It's not simply recalling information to mind, but it's actively speaking about and thinking about and acting on that remembrance. A better translation would be commemorate your pastors. And so while some in the church, in particularly the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition, have used this to justify things like praying to and worshiping saints, using relics, a lot of different things that we would, would probably not think is okay, what is okay is for us to commemorate our pastors. I'm sure all of us have a pastor in our life that we can remember and think, 
wow, my, my Christian life is really different because of the work and the labor that that pastor put in on my behalf. Uh, the pastor that comes to mind for me, apart obviously from my current pastor, is a man named Chris Studensky. Right? He was my youth pastor when I was in high school. I came to faith under his ministry. And then after I graduated, he actually had started another church plant and I went to be a member at his church. And he had a, an indelible effect on my life. If you were to listen to his preaching and listen to me when I preach, you would actually hear similar kinds of phrasing and similar ways that we say things because his preaching has had that much of an impact on me. And so we should, during Pastoral Appreciation Month, we should not only think about our current pastor, but we should take time to remember and appreciate the men in our lives who have preached the word of God to us. We should think about the godly outcome of their life, that they finished the race, that they're part of the cloud of witnesses that Paul talks about two chapters earlier, or the author of Hebrews talks about two chapters earlier. And so we have to, we have to think in those terms. This is the beginning of this passage, right? This is the, the, the first piece of bread in the Bible sandwich here. So everything that comes after it and everything that finishes it is related to that concept. So he then goes on to affirm for uh, the Hebrew uh, audience here that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And now it's, it's very uh, common and I think probably right to look at this and think about the immutability and the unchanging nature of, of the second person of the Trinity who eternally was God and, and eternally is God and always will be. But the author of Hebrews here is taking that divine reality and he's using it to ground the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is and eternally was God is in part why we can trust him as the, as the God-man, as the incarnate Christ, to be faithful. He, he has a special union and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He has a special union and fellowship with the Father that that grounds his faithfulness and sameness, right? And so the author of Hebrews here is saying, remember your former pastors, remember their godly life, imitate their faith. And then he's saying, but don't worry, because even though those pastors are gone, Jesus Christ is faithful. The gift he gave you in that pastor, he's faithful to give you a gift in your pastor. We, we need to read the rest of this in light of that. And then he goes on to talk about, we're not going to get into a lot of details, but he goes on to talk about the Old Testament uh, administration of worship. He goes on to talk about how those who still minister at the tabernacle, the Jewish uh, religious leaders of the day, they have no right to come and eat at this table because they're under the old economy. And now we are under the new economy of the church. And just a, a little digression, if I may, it is amazing to me on a day like today where uh, we don't have music, we're, we're all wearing masks, things are very different, we have to sit very far apart from each other. The Old Testament church would not have been able to continue their worship. They wouldn't. Because the Old Testament church had to have certain physical realities in place. They had to have a temple. They had to have a priest. They had to have the lamb to be sacrificed to do the Passover. They had to go to Jerusalem. When the new covenant is inaugurated, when the new covenant comes to pass, our worship becomes simple and it becomes universal, right? Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, there will come a time where those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth, not on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth, wherever they may be. And so I personally am very thankful 
uh, I didn't plan this when I, I picked this passage. But the author here is comparing and contrasting the ornaments and the ornamentation of the Old Testament worship with the simplicity and the durability of the New Testament worship. And so when we come to church on a day like this where we don't have music, where everything seems to be disrupted, we can still worship. So that's an auxiliary point, but it, it didn't seem right to pass that up when it's right there in the text. So, so skip down a little bit here, and uh, we're going to go down to uh, verse, let's see, I lost my place with that digression. So it says here in verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the camp and uh, to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go out to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an uh, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. But I want you to look um, look here at verse nine, and look how similar the ideas and the language to what Paul was talking about in Ephesians is. Right? So the fact that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the fact that he uh, gives us good gifts, and that the good gifts we had in our former pastors who shepherded us and brought us to the faith, he's faithful to give us the good gift of a current pastor. And then he says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Or as Paul said, do not be tossed about on, on winds of doctrine. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods. So in this context, you know, the author is trying to convince the readers or the listeners to the sermon here. He's convincing them not to go back to the old shadows of the old covenant. That was the strange teaching that they were facing, similar to what Paul was facing in Galatia, to not return to the burden of the law, but to remain free in Christ. We don't necessarily have that same strange teaching in our world in the same way. There's always a temptation for Christians to go back to the law, whether it's the moral law of the Old Testament and to, to go to that for salvation, that's a form of legalism, or whether it's some sort of justification by civic responsibility. We always have this tendency to want to seek a law. But there are some other strange teachings in our world that our pastor has helped us to be prepared to face. Just a few that have been in the headlines over the last couple months. There is a radical attack on the biblical concept of family and marriage. Right? We live in a world where uh, less and less people uh, are getting married. More and more people are living and cohabitating prior to marriage. Um, the idea of uh, premarital sex being something that displeases God is basically foreign to many of the younger generation of Christians. Um, a recent survey uh, was done, and uh, there, are, there are, are staggering numbers of young evangelical Christians who have engaged in uh, multiple sexual reality or uh, relationships prior to becoming married, many of them before the age of 18. And so we have this world that is telling us what God says about marriage and family and sexual morality, that's old fashioned, you can just get rid of that. We're facing a radical understanding of human autonomy that seeks to live utterly independent of God to the point where we actually seek to be sovereign over every element of our identity, right? If I wanna, if I wanna change a fundamental part of who I am, all I have to do is say that it's so and it becomes so. There's the ever-present wickedness of abortion, which is in the 
news right now uh, as a result of the upcoming uh, confirmation hearings for the uh, Supreme Court Justice. The hot button uh, topic is going to be Roe versus Wade. And although it's unlikely, even with her confirmation, that Roe versus Wade would be overturned in the near future, uh, the whole country is on edge because this idea that we can engage in um, whatever kind of sexual relationship we want and whatever the consequences, uh, whether there is consequence of a new life, we can just terminate that. We can just get rid of it. And there are also all sorts of false teachings and heresy out in our world, kind of the more traditional enemies of the church. Uh, a recent survey by Ligonier Ministries, which was the ministry founded by the late R.C. Sproul, found that something like 75% of evangelicals, when asked, would say that Jesus is not God. They just don't understand that what they're actually affirming is a century-old heresy that the church overcame in the year, the year uh, 425. So 1,600 years ago, people died and bled for us to have the Nicene Creed in order to affirm that Jesus is God of God, very God of very God. And now we have evangelicals who are saying, well, he's probably just a good teacher. And I shudder to think about how ill-equipped we would be in this church if it were not for the teaching of our pastor. When I look back over the last year, we've had teachings on what it means to be a family, what, what it means to be a church. We've done apologetics teachings on how to respond to uh, these false teachings, how to respond to the heresy and the error that's out there. We are solidly grounded in the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone as taught by the scriptures alone. And so when we look at the task of a pastor, when we look at the faithfulness of a pastor, we can be thankful that our pastor checks off all the boxes. And the ultimate reason that we can be thankful for that is because we can know that we have a faithful Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we'll close here as we look at verses 15 and 16. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. And so sometimes we think about offering a sacrifice of praise primarily as the, the verbal worship that we offer. But if you look at what he actually means, he says, and do not forget to do good and share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So the sacrifices of praise that uh, the author here is talking about are not necessarily just when we get together in worship. That's good. That's a sacrifice of praise. It's not necessarily the money we put in the offering plate, although that's good. That's a sacrifice of praise. But what it is, is to do good works, to live faithfully according to the good word that is preached to us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he gives us the final payout. And I, I think the final good work, the final sacrifice of praise he's talking about here. And he says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Last week, uh, there was an insert in the bulletin. It was a red insert. And it's an insert that we put in the bulletin every year in October. And it talks about the difficult reality of what it is to be a pastor. And I don't have the stats in front of me, but I know people that I graduated seminary with who made it for less than one year in ministry because they got into ministry and the people they were ministering to made it a burden and not a joy. Now, some of that is there's a very real reality that some people should not go into the ministry and they make it into ministry anyways. But there are good men in the ministry 
who seek to pour themselves out for the gospel and they get walked all over. And that is what this passage is saying is your, your pastor, your leaders will pour themselves out for you. They will sacrifice for you. They will give their lives for you if it comes to that. Don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't make it a burden to them. This is the final way we show appreciation to our pastor. We show appreciation to our pastor by following his godly example, by remembering the path of his life. We are thankful that our pastor is still with us and he, uh, we pray that he will be with us for many, many years. But we remember the course of his life as it has come so far, what's led him to this place, what's led him to be our pastor. We commemorate his ministry every year. We don't do pastoral appreciation just because it's October, just because somewhere probably in the early 1900s, someone decided that Reformation Month would be a good month to do pastoral appreciation. We do it because the Bible commands us to. We appreciate our pastors, and I love what Gene said, we appreciate our pastors not just in October, but every month, every day. And there are lots of ways the, the bulletin has to do that. There's lots of ways to say thank you. But in this passage, the biblical passage that we have, we're taught to obey our pastors, to submit to them. And through doing that, we make their work a joy. And finally, the, the author here, who was likely the pastor of the church where this sermon was delivered, he may have been a traveling you know, itinerant preacher, but he was probably the pastor at the church there. He says, pray for us. Pray for us because we, we have a good conscience and we, live to, we, we, we desire to live honorably in every way. But you need to pray for us because the people in the world who are most under attack most times by the world, by the forces of the devil, by their own personal temptations, a lot of times are our pastors. And so we should be praying for our pastor. Right now we pray especially for his health as he goes and ministers to students at Mid-Vermont. We pray for his workload as he still is maintaining three different jobs to be able to, to serve uh, the people of the Upper Valley here. We pray for his health. We know all sorts of reasons we need to pray for him. So we should faithfully, diligently commit to do that. So if I were to summarize this in one sentence, it's thank you, Pastor Kevin. We love you and we appreciate you and we seek to fulfill this mandate. So let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you. We know that it is ultimately for your glory that you have done everything that you've done to bring us to this place, that you brought our pastor here for your glory and for your purposes, and that any uh, good work that he accomplishes is ultimately because you have gifted him and equipped him by your Holy Spirit. But we also know that you are not a God that removes our agency. You're not a God who operates us like a puppet or a remote control car. You are a God who utilizes your people and orchestrates everything about their lives to bring them into the place you desire them. And so although we praise you uh, only for the gift that is our pastor, we also commemorate and celebrate our pastor. Help us to remember him daily in our prayers, to talk about him and how blessed we are that he is in our life to people around us. When we go to work tomorrow and we're asked how our weekend was, help us to say, I got to go worship the Lord. And I got to do that because the Lord has blessed our church with a faithful pastor who preaches the word and ministers to my soul. 
Help us not to be a burden to him. Help us to be faithful and diligent to submit to his authority, to respect and observe his directions and his wisdom. And help us always to be spurred on to do good works and to offer that sacrifice of praise to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.